Hey, everybody. Welcome to The New Deal. I'm your host, Jerry Nutini, and thanks for listening. For more from The New Deal, head on over to thenewdeal.com for The New Deal podcast, blog, and YouTube episodes. And if you like what you see and hear over there, please subscribe, like, rate, and review the podcast episode and blog. It would be much appreciated. This week is the second part of a two-part episode on critical race theory. I'm just going to give a slight recap of where I left off last week, uh, just so I can bring anyone up to speed who didn't catch the whole episode and doesn't feel like listening to a whole hour of podcast before you jump into this one. So last week went over critical race theory. What is critical race theory? Well, critical race theory is an academic concept that is more than 40 years old. The core idea is that racism is a social construct, and that is not merely the product of individual bias or prejudice, but also something embedded in legal systems and policies. That's the definition of critical race theory. As we learned, the conservative take on critical race theory is this. Listen to this clip. Critical race theory is racism, pure and simple. And it should be rejected by every American of every race. And let me tell you right now, critical race theory is bigoted, it is a lie, and it is every bit as racist as the Klansmen in white sheets. So there we go. The conservative take CRT is every bit as racist as the Klan in white sheets. So remember the first definition I gave? That was the that was the uh, conservative take, so to speak. So with those definitions in mind, uh, I just want to recap where I uh, left off last episode, what my conclusions were. So we talked somewhat about you know, CRT being in education, uh, what, you know, whether or not it should be taught in the classroom, kind of the pros and cons to why it should be taught in the classroom. Um, so far as education goes, um, I, I said that to omit these concepts from our curriculum uh, would be in and of itself indoctrination and propaganda, because a curriculum like that is going to give everyone a warm, fuzzy feeling about America and it's going to ignore the larger issues of race um, and, you know, paint that warm, fuzzy picture. It would be the equivalent of making excuses for a partner's alcohol or drug use for the sake of protecting their reputations. And that type of behavior is going to ignore or minimize reality while enabling the continuation of the bad behavior. And in this regard, uh, systemic racism is reality. Systemic racism is the bad behavior uh, that we're going to continue to enable and ignore if we don't address it, and certainly within our high schools and colleges. Conservative critics of critical race theory and systemic racism who do not want these concepts taught to students, uh, do not see or do not want to see a problem. And if they don't acknowledge a problem, they're not going to have any interest in fixing a problem. So, so that was where we left off last episode. And again, if you want more details, please go check out uh, my episode on critical race theory part one, where we go over a lot of the education stuff, uh, how this theory uh, came into the public discourse uh, with Christopher Rufo appearing on Fox News a year ago and how we got here. Uh, that's all in the first episode. Today, um, I want to go over kind of what the conservative process is, the cultural pressures that we see, and the GOP endgame. There's an American recipe for ignoring racism. Just as a disclaimer, this episode is going to have a heavy focus on the way that I perceive conservatives personally uh, and how I think they operate. I want to be clear that when I use terms like conservative, liberal, Democrat, Republican, progressive, I'm painting in wide strokes. And I want to recognize that these groups themselves, this is how they're defined in the mainstream today. Okay, so, I'm, so I understand that not every member of these groups is going to think or feel or express themselves in the same way as the way that I'm painting it, as, as other people in that ideology. Um, so I just want to make sure I'm not grouping everyone up. So just a disclaimer, I'm going to use language like that, but I'm not grouping everyone in together. Um, I want moderates and conservatives to be able to listen to the podcast so that we can have a conversation or at a minimum so that you know, they can understand a left-wing viewpoint that hasn't been distributed through mainstream media. As with all things, there's a vast middle ground. Um, so I'm using the polls because they're the most easily defined. Um, but if you're in between, it makes perfect sense if you uh, relate to both sides in some way. So back to the American recipe on ignoring racism. The first subject is the distinction between liberal and conservative groups in how we perceive nationalism. So for me, I grew up being taught that America is an idea. Uh, our constitution is a living document. Uh, it's meant to be updated and changed with the evolution of our society uh, so that the constitution itself remains relevant. I, I learned early on that America is not the shining and wondrous example of morality and equity that our grade school textbooks would have us believe. And one of the proudest things, uh, one of the things we can be proudest of in this country 
is that the nation is built on a constitution that allows us, the people, to adapt and change. It allows us to recognize when and where we have misstepped and how to fix it. Um, that, that's the genius of our constitution. But many conservatives subscribe to a more traditional sense of nationalism in, in which they see America as infallible. To question America's integrity or that of the Constitution or to imply that America has ever been on the wrong side of history is considered an act of heresy. In this version of nationalism, America becomes a religious belief rather than a grand experiment. And that's the type of nationalism that's at the heart of the idea um, of ugly topics like um, slavery or over acts of racism or uh, now systemic racism, you know, advocating that those should be left out of the public school curriculums. If we dare to explore what's driving that kind of nationalism, we find a strange mix of willful, willful ignorance, uh, naivete, and a healthy dose of denialism. To deny the existence of racism, a person would either need to flat out ignore or genuinely be unaware of the very clear list of events that I mentioned in the previous section uh, that showcase again and again that America has never been subtle about institutional racism. And just to go over some of you know what those events are, America practiced slavery for hundreds of years. We only counted black uh, slaves as three-fifths a person in the original Constitution. Uh, half of our citizenry literally went to war, put their lives on the line to keep black people enslaved. We passed Jim Crow laws. We endorsed and practiced complete segregation. Uh, we gave the latest and greatest school resources to the white schools and gave the worn, dated uh, books to black schools. Uh, we passed criminal justice and drug policies that targeted black people in communities and established in a prison industrial complex. Uh, we routinely turned the other way when black people were killed by police and many different manners, and we just had a president who could not bring himself to genuinely or authentically denounce racism during multiple live broadcasts. So so just, you know, a little bit of, you know, things we did that, you know, might hint that, you know, we have some institutional racism. So to deny the existence of systemic racism, you must be completely unaware of all that. But anyway, once we understand how a person can become capable of employing the type of mental acrobatics that allow them to ignore racism or deny historical events. It becomes easier to imagine how some Americans think the Civil War was not about slavery, or don't believe the Confederate flag is a symbol of racism, or support policies uh, that benefit the ultra-wealthy even though it doesn't help them, or pretend the Constitution is gospel rather than an ever-changing document, or watch Fox News daily or believe with all sincerity that a mass election fraud is the only way Joe Biden could have won an election, or maybe that's the only way they could take up arms against the United States and attack the Capitol in an act of terror while somehow thinking they're patriots. Maybe, maybe this is how we can understand how people get into that mindset. The process that cultivates the framework necessary to be able to overlook established historical facts and longstanding instances of human suffering is not a short process. I'm going to put forward what I think this process looks like. I am not a psychologist. Not. Zero. No, psych, no background here, okay? Um, this is not based on psychological research. All I want to do here is I'm going to take my own experiences and observations and apply my own logic to that to draw some conclusions. So that disclaimer there, this is, this is not psychology. This is my opinion. This is what I've observed. That being said, here's how I think that process works. Step one, a person is either never taught about certain events or social issues, or they're taught to downplay or ignore certain historical facts. Step two, then without that very basic foundation of past lessons learned, those people are susceptible to toxic cultural concepts like extreme nationalism because those concepts have been ingrained in them already through family, community, uh, the internet, and this step is crucial because it typically includes external figures in someone's life making conscious and intentional effort to persuade someone to ignore the facts or to twist the facts and throw out misinterpretations, um, or as Kellyanne Conway said, to put out alternative facts, right? So step two. Step three, two major weapons employed in this persuasion are the concepts of victim blaming and self-aggrandizement. So... What, what is victim blaming? Um, victim blaming is a powerful tool in dehumanizing the suffering of others while simultaneously creating a false narrative 
that the majority of suffering, especially when talking about whole demographics, is somehow the fault of or perpetuated by a lack of willingness or effort on the part of the victim to escape their plight. It removes all responsibility from the observer outside the oppressed group, even if actions that they take or the systems they participate in contribute to the suffering of those demographics. Hey, you're in that situation because you put yourself in that situation and you aren't trying hard enough to get out of it or else you wouldn't be in that situation, right? Victim blaming. We pair that with self-aggrandizement. And self-aggrandizement, in my observation, comes primarily in the form of fetishizing hardship and suffering. So it typically sounds something like this. Hey, uh, I'd sell all my things, live in the streets, work 19 jobs to get where I am today. So there's no excuse for other people who can't succeed. We've all heard something like that. Uh, I'd, uh, you know, walk uphill both ways in the snow, you know, whatever. The person that's delivering this line is upset or bitter about the fact that their path was difficult. Uh, Rather than acknowledge that the effort required of them was excessive or unfair or at a minimum unfortunate, they instead normalize that experience in a misery loves company kind of way. You know, if I had to suffer, uh, why should anyone else have it easier? Um, and this is the same mindset that breed terms like, uh, you know, someone says, oh, well, life is unfair or, oh, no one said life is easy. It, it boils down to an unwillingness to address the source issues that caused their own hardship in the first place in an effort to make things easier for others. But it goes further than that. Given the option of analyzing their experience and taking action to make sure others can avoid a similar one, they instead glorify their experience. And beyond that, they proclaim that experiences of suffering are necessary for others to succeed, which is bullshit. They believe this so strongly that they would rather keep systems of oppression or barriers to success in place for others because the only way they can rationalize their own experience is by convincing themselves that it was good for them. They view suffering as a rite of passage, and that's where it you know, that's where the fetishism is. So, you know, like it, it gets elevated, it gets put up on a pedestal. What this narrow-mindedness ignores entirely is that there's enough adversity in everyone's life that occurs naturally, that those experiences are more than enough to do things like build character. You know, we, we all go through the deaths of family. We all face ad- adversity at our jobs or, or, or losing jobs or, um, you know, difficulty with friends or mental illness, whatever. There's enough, Right. But by leaving roadblocks in place intentionally, they aim to guarantee a level of suffering for everyone. And this phenomenon is not exclusive to any one demographic. It's utilized in other cultural arguments. Um, it's, you, you hear it all the time uh, in, in relationship to different subjects. But it's particularly relevant to issues of systemic racism because it paints the illusion that because hardship is universal – that targeted or systemic suffering just doesn't make sense. You know, if white people suffer too, then why should a white person believe that a black person's suffering is actually systemic oppression, right? And this is where so, so much of the confusion with white privilege comes in, because this thought process allows for white people to falsely equate their suffering with that of minority groups, and therefore it breeds an unwillingness to believe that minority groups face built-in barriers to success that white people don't, because acknowledging those barriers they believe, would somehow minimize the value they place in their own suffering, right? It it takes away from their own. So to recap, step three is uh, victim blaming and self-aggrandizement. Step four, once basic facts and truths are denied and an extreme feeling of nationalism takes root within a person, um, that person's going to become defensive about any challenge to the workings or reputations of their country. They're going to become resentful of people who offer even mild suggestions or alternatives to the status quo of their belief system. And because their love of country borders on religious fanaticism, they're going to begin to hate anyone who begins to bring about change that flies in the face of their perfect America or perfect whatever country, really, because this applies anywhere that this mindset can happen. Step five. Now, if they're angry and feeling defensive and scared, they turn on right-wing media and the like-minded personalities uh, that they find there paired with the familiar disregard of truth and fact and extreme hyperbole are going to feed their conviction. Step six, then the people feeling this way do things like complain about Dr. Seuss books being removed from the market or demand CRT not be taught in schools, even though it hasn't been taught in schools, or buy into long-planned, extremely obvious uh, uh, narratives of a fraudulent election campaign, you know, being described months before the election ever occurred, while simultaneously also believing that if their candidate wins the election, then there there must not have been fraud, right? Simultaneously, their anger, 
their fear, their warped sense of reality is going to leave them vulnerable to brainwashing and the types of calls to action we witnessed leading up to the insurrection of January 6th. And suddenly people who profess an unyielding love of country and and consider themselves the epitome of an American patriot are laying siege to the U.S. Capitol, literally taking up arms against the very country they say they love. It's a long process. It starts when we're young. It, 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 it's, it's complex. It's, it's not easy. It's not something that happens overnight. It's not something that happens without a lot of effort, conscious effort on the parts of multiple players, um, whether it be family members or a political party or you know media that's trying to get their message across. What these people don't often say out loud is that the only love that they only love the version of America that allows them to comfortably ignore wide-scale issues of race and frequently their own privilege. Once the blissful ignorance is challenged, they have no issue attacking their country despite the lack of any fundamental transgression on the part of either the government or the citizens. Based on conversations I've had or I've seen on social media, um, I've seen people say that they will take up arms against other Americans or the government. If something is done that they don't like, um, like a constitutional repeal, a reform of the Second Amendment, for instance, but they would take up arms simply because they don't believe that those changes represent the America they believe in. They are willing to undermine the Constitution and the framework of America in order to preserve their own definitions of them, even if the majority of the country wants to move forward and continue progressing. It's what the same recipe that allows a person to ignore racism lends itself to the kind of extremism and fanaticism, especially in the age of Trump, and it should not be taken lightly, okay? So I am a, I'm a liberal. I know there's a lot of moderates out there. What, what is very seldom acknowledged is how the radical right became radical. There is an assembly line in place for this to happen. There is a reason that when Trump came into office, so many people changed Um, their opinions changed, their demeanor changed. They were saying things that you've never seen them say before. That wasn't accidental. There are mechanisms in place that are making these people second-guess their beliefs, making them feel scared, making them feel anxious, and then saying, oh, well, we need to take stronger action. We need to take radical action because now I'm scared for my my own well-being. And it's a slow kind of deliberate brainwashing. And we don't talk about it enough. We talk about far too much, oh, well, you know, that's crazy. But we don't talk about how the crazy got there and and how it's staying there. You know, after the attack of January 6th, a lot of Republicans in office, I believe, really thought that Donald Trump was going to lose sway with voters. They were they were calling for commissions. They were saying, oh, yeah, yeah, let's investigate January 6th. They, they were calling for investigations. They were calling for uh, committees to be formed generally unified, um, on that note at least. But over time, as, as it became clear that Trump wasn't losing as much power as they thought, they all backpedaled. There, there's this beholdenness to Trump and that type of far-right ideology that sticks. And the reason it sticks is because of fear on multiple levels from our politicians all the way down to the voters. And I say it shouldn't be taken lightly because it is a process. It is an assembly line. It is it's not by chance. It's not just people being crazy. Like, oh my God, what were they thinking? Oh, you know, they'll change. They'll, they'll come to their senses. They won't if there's a system in place that is continually working to keep them exactly where they are. Okay? So that's the process. That's what, they, that's what I think you know, people go through to get to the mindset where they're you know, storming the capital. So there are challenges here. There, there are challenges in, in moving forward as a country. There's challenges in unifying. What does that look like? So just on the subject of systemic racism, critical race theory, I'm a generally open-minded person, or I, I try to be. I've had to change a lot of my viewpoints in my lifetime because I was uninformed on them and I felt really strongly about them. And then over time, I learned like, oh, you know what? Like, I'm not thinking the right way about this. Like, maybe I should rethink how I'm thinking about this um, on a number of subjects. And, and this is no different. Um, so despite me being relatively open-minded and I'm curious and I'm willing to put an effort to learn and understand um, ideas um, like white privilege or systemic racism or critical race theory, those were hard and uncomfortable lessons for me to learn. I, I, these were not like, oh, now I understand. Uh, there, was, there was a process that I went through. And you know, 
it made me defensive. It made me feel a little bit guilty. You have to work through that. That that I, I think that might be the natural reaction for a lot of people, even though it's not the right thing to feel because that's not productive. But you have to work through that. It's uncomfortable. So imagine if we have a straight white male in their 30s or 40s who has extremely limited knowledge about racism, and they do not or will not believe in concepts of systemic racism, and they don't believe that America is a racist nation. Uh, they believe that we're post-racism because we had a black president. They hear terms white privilege and they get defensive because they feel like they're being blamed for their whiteness. And then pair that with a strong sense of identity politics. That person's probably likely you know, loyal to the Republican Party or to the conservative ideology, at least. At a minimum, if they ever wanted to learn these concepts, it'd be a betrayal of their political community. Just to touch on that, currently, I think we see this more with Republicans than Democrats. And I, I don't think I'm being biased here. I might be. And if I am, please let me know. Democrats regularly challenge their own leadership, regularly, from both the progressive side and the moderate side. You've got AOC and Bernie Sanders pushing for uh, big programs that will bring fundamental change to America, you know, at least I believe in a good way. And then you've got the Joe Manchins of the world who are saying, ignore them. We need to be working with the Republicans in a bipartisan way. So you've got it from both sides. And there's a wide spectrum. And yet, AOC is not being removed from her committees. Joe Manchin's not being removed from his committees. They're all part of the same party. No one's being punished for you know, taking the opposite view of the party. Republicans have said to their members, if you don't fall in line, you're going to be ostracized. And you're going to be removed from positions of power. You're going to be removed from committees. And they say this no matter how radical an issue is being pushed. Basically, if it's coming from Trump or it's coming from McCarthy, that's what it is. And if you step out of line, it's over, right? There, there's a zero tolerance policy. It's an authoritarian way to run your party. That really can't be denied. We're talking about a party whose majority of House reps voted against certifying an election and in both chambers, who voted down any investigation into the attack on our capital. You know, if a person who's open-minded and willing to put in the effort to learn about these concepts and theories can struggle with them and be made uncomfortable by them, then the likelihood that someone who's typically unwilling to explore such concepts, the likelihood that they'll come to understand those concepts, never mind advocate for them or for social change, is, is pretty close to zero. And that gap in unwillingness to challenge the status quo and the will of people, top to bottom, politicians to voters, to self-reflect, um, that's at the heart of most of the political division in the country. But it's especially relevant to racism. To many conservatives, racism is a zero-sum issue, um, as in they believe that if you empower black Americans and remove the social barriers that have oppressed them, that that will automatically disadvantage white Americans. And that's not the case. And they get here because they're, they're, they're not really concerned, conservatives, about equal competition because in their minds, they've earned everything that they've earned already as if the playing field were equal. But they still unknowingly project their belief that if black Americans have the same economic support, education, access to voting, and representation, and were not disproportionately targeted by the justice system, that it might be more difficult for a white person to succeed. They channel that, right? Plainly put, many white people understand that black Americans are disadvantaged simply because they are threatened by an America where black Americans have the same opportunities from childhood as white kids. And they justify their fear by vehemently arguing that the playing field is already even. Therefore, any other support or reform or rights that would help black Americans are viewed as unfair advantages in their eyes. If we empower black people, we'll be giving them an advantage because they see the playing field as even now. So if we're doing anything to help the black community, we must be giving them an advantage. And it's, it's, it's a gross viewpoint. It's hypocritical and it's self-serving, but it's complex because for some white people, these issues touch on their sense of identity. Um, their sense of success or self-worth and these concepts challenge the beliefs that exist at or are close to their core. Um, I I'm not offering this as an excuse. I'm just saying like, oh, well, you know, their feelings get hurt. So, you know, it is what it is. I'm not offering it as an excuse, but rather as a demonstration of why it's so difficult to change hearts and minds. 
any issue that threatens a person's core set of beliefs is going to elicit a similar defensive response in, in anyone on any issue that they feel strongly about. I mean, if you tell me that you're going to take hockey away because you don't like it, I'm going to be really upset about you taking hockey away. I um, mean, if you can find a really good reason, maybe I'll consider it, but I'm going to have to put a lot of effort into considering it because I don't want you to take hockey away, right? We're up against human nature, or at a minimum, we're up against the human ego. And, and, so, and so nothing short of cultural or generational evolution fueled by comprehensive, honest, and sometimes uncomfortable education is going to help to further bridge this gap. It's extremely difficult to unlearn what you've already learned, what you already believe in, which is why students should be exposed to concepts of systemic racism from the beginning. Once they're exposed, they can do whatever they want with that information. But to withhold that information from them entirely, it does students in America as a whole a disservice. And dangerously and heartbreakingly, Americans who feel this way, Americans who feel like, you know, looking at systemic racism and maybe putting some stock in systemic racism and working to rid this country of systemic racism, Americans who feel this way exist in large enough numbers to stall efforts to remove these oppressive systems from our institutions in the name of equality and justice for black Americans and other minority groups. And that means that every day, in every state, in every city and town, there are Americans, our fellow countrymen and women, who will continue to suffer at the hands of white advantage-based society because there are people out there in large enough numbers who deny that systemic racism exists. And because of their denial, people in our country, our neighbors, other Americans, we're all on the same team, are being hurt because of that. And we have other Americans saying, I don't believe they're hurt. Or if they're hurt, it's their own fault. Or, hey, I struggled too, so they there's no excuse for them. Right? What we're seeing with critical race theory, systemic racism, in our current political climate is not really about the premise of the theory itself. It's, it's about the validity of the civil rights movement that's going on right now. Conservatives have been immensely critical of many of the new schools um, of thought that have entered into the mainstream, such as white privilege, systemic racism. But until now, they've only been able to address them as separate abstract concepts. What do I mean that by this? You know, so white privilege. Oh, well, that, that's a term. White privilege gets thrown out there. Up until now, white privilege has been thrown out there as its own term, white privilege. We have discussions on white privilege about white privilege and what privilege means. And in some ways, the argument for the existence of white privilege is so strong that Republicans have had trouble making it sound as evil as they want it to sound. There's an undeniable truth, I think, that exists at the core of some of these concepts that Republicans are willing to go a little bit, you know, just they're willing to challenge it a little bit, but they don't want to push the boundary too, too far because it's a hard argument to win, but it's also a single argument, right? This isn't talking about something huge like healthcare, where we can pass a bill for healthcare. We're talking about a cultural theory in white privilege, right? Or systemic racism. They were, they were tackling them as singular issues in singular arguments. And they could, they could both engage them, uh, but in, in a way that wasn't completely serious, or they could completely ignore it and no one on their side would care. But now they're hijacking the phrase critical race theory. They're bringing CRT in the con to, into the conservative lexicon. Christopher Rufo, the gentleman who appeared on Tucker Carlson and brought critical race theory into the you know, mainstream discourse in this way, has provided critics a brand, as he called it, under which to lump all the academic theories and principles that they disagree with. The term critical race theory sounds edgy and aggressive and even a little bit preachy. Um, it's become a catch-all, not just for critical race theory, the theory itself, but for white privilege and systemic racism and social and civil rights movements. And it's a banner under which to condemn groups like Black Lives Matter. Oh, oh, that Black Lives Matter, that, you know, that's, that's all critical race theory. That's that crazy, crazy critical race theory, and that's what they're pushing. That's what Black Lives Matter are pushing. And, you know, it's as crazy as critical race theory, right? Because the definition of critical race theory that's being thrown out there right now is not critical race theory. It's this weird, twisted, bastardized version of critical race theory that Christopher Rufo himself has said is a brand for all things essentially civil rights related. It's a package, right, that wraps up all the uncomfortable academic race theories and annoying racial truths and pesky civil rights movements 
so that they can be conflated and confused and ultimately misrepresented. And the sudden widespread use of this term by conservatives has much more to do with a marketing strategy than it has to do with any intellectual argument, right? No conservative is actually trying to like argue about the theory of critical race theory in its form as a law school, you know, academic uh, class or, or subject. Um, they're talking about systemic racism and white privilege, and they're talking about it in the way that it's been conveyed to them by conservative media, and they're arguing against that, or they're using that as their basis as their argument against a actual theory, but it's not the actual theory because they're arguing against a theory that they created. They're taking both sides. Hey, critical race theory, that sounds cool. Um, it doesn't mean what it means now. It means what we want it to mean, which is it's bad. Critical race theory is bad, and it's crazy, and it's stupid, and it's extremist, and that's what it is, right? And then you know, liberals come along, oh, well, you know, critical race theory, you know, it's kind of like systemic racism. And they're like, yeah, systemic racism is bad. We've been saying that for like months now, right? So critical race theory is bad. And systemic racism is bad and white privilege is bad. It's all bad. Both sides of the argument. They, they, they've taken it. It makes me mad because I, I, I have time. I have time in this episode, which is, which is nice. I don't usually have time to, uh, to go on a little bit here, but I'm going to do it. So it makes me mad because the Republicans can market to their voters w with a level of effect that is staggering. It's staggering. I don't know why Democrats can't better get their message out to the public. When you poll the public at large on issues without like putting like a candidate or, or a, um, without putting a candidate next to the, the issue or putting a party next to the issue, voters in America overwhelmingly favor democratic policies, overwhelmingly you know, in like a blind study or whatever. They like healthcare. They want better social programs. They like more support. They're willing, you know, they're willing to tax the rich, tax breaks for the middle class, all that stuff. They're all for it. Put, put the word Democrat next to it though. And Tucker Carlson says Democrats are bad. So if Democrats are bad and Democrats want healthcare, then I think healthcare, healthcare is bad. Healthcare is bad, right? Same thing with critical race theory. Same thing with government support programs. I don't understand. The, the Republicans convinced their voters that they shouldn't want free money from the government. Think about that. The party that is typically most skeptical of government and government, blah, 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 is like, hey, um, yeah, you know, all, you give away all your welfare money and like blah, blah, blah. And COVID comes around, like people need support. Businesses need support. People need support. They need to like pay their mortgages and go get groceries. And the Republicans convinced some of their voters that, oh, no, you shouldn't take that money. You don't want that money. And they repeat it. They repeat it on social media. They repeat it in conversations. They repeat it everywhere. It's like, you're turning down free money. The government's like, hey, guys, like, for once, we're going to help you out, right? Like, we acknowledge the little guy. Hey, little guy, you guys are suffering. Your business isn't getting any customers. You can't pay your mortgage. Here's some money. And then they're like, no, we don't. We don't think we want that money it it doesn't we don't want it they said don't take it we're not going to take it it's the republicans are are masterful at making their voter base believe whatever they're throwing out there even if it's like hey you don't want money okay they don't want money democrats are typically great at marketing great at branding great at you know getting up there and like giving some you know impassioned speeches that really uh you know, make you feel good. They make they empower you. They make you feel good about like the the things you believe in. They 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 get an emotional reaction out of you. You're like, yeah, let's go, right? And then they're like, oh, yeah, the Republicans are doing this thing, and we don't. It's not great, but we're gonna try to work with them. Okay, what about what about healthcare though? Oh well, you know, we tried. You, you know, there there there's no fight, and 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 to, to some extent. I think this comes off because, or it exists in this way, because Democrats tend to hold themselves accountable a little bit more. And, and again, I don't think I'm being biased here. When Al Franken was accused of sexually harassing or sexually assaulting uh, that woman, before any real, you know, real story, real facts came out, he was asked to leave the Senate by the Democrats. And he did. You know, there, there's a level of accountability that Democrats hold themselves to that isn't true for the Republican Party. 
Josh Hawley can wave at and support a group of people who attack the Capitol and the Republican Party's like, yeah, but he's all right. He's cool. Oh, Ted Cruz, he's cool. You know, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't matter. Oh, the, oh, the president might have had some part to play in that. Whatever, he's he's on our team and we like him. So yeah, we're just going to sweep that one under the rug, right? It's It's nuts. It's nuts. And in the same way, Democrats, I think, know that it's right to be bipartisan. It's right to want to try to find compromise. It's, it's right to want to get something for everybody. And so we naively think that that's what we should try to do. And then Joe Manchin throws out plans with compromise in them and Republicans laugh at him and they're like, no, we're not passing that. Oh, it has everything we want in it. All right. Well, you wrote it though, so we're not going to pass it. It's It's infuriating because Republicans say they want all these things, but then they don't, you know, they don't practice what they preach. I don't know what needs to happen here. I don't I don't have a solution. All I'm saying is that Republicans can convince Americans not to take free money. Republicans can hijack a phrase like critical race theory that came out of some ac- legal academic book. No one had really ever heard of it before besides people in the law law field. They take a oh, critical race theory, that sounds cool. It means that all things for civil rights are bad. White privilege, oh that's stupid. Systemic racism, it doesn't exist. Racism, we're we're done with that in America. Uh that's all critical race theory. Critical race theory is stupid. You know, it, uh, wow. They got a guy who has like no experience. He he, re, he said he researched this for six months and talked to a few people and he came up with this uh, definition of critical race theory and, and look, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Some nobody was like, hey, this and half the country is like, yeah, that. Um, I, I don't know. I don't have a solution for it. But it, it, it is in and of itself dangerous. It's a scary kind of dichotomy because one side is really good at doing this and the other side is still trying to play ball or or not taking as strong a stand as they need to or are worried about be- coming off as divisive and um i'm i'm not sure what we do there so but that but that's how critical theory that's why critical theory is in the mainstream right now it is a branding campaign it is a marketing campaign by the republican party it has nothing to do with the definition it has nothing to do with the legal concept of you know Hey, this is a way in which we analyze our laws to see whether or not they advantage or disadvantage some people over others. It's nothing close to that definition. Like I said, marketing strategy. The issue of whether CRT should be allowed to be taught in schools isn't even relevant. The the only goal here was to find an easily digestible, easily recognizable term that when mentioned evokes all the anger and all the frustration, all the fear that conservative voters associate with all of these terms simultaneously. Critical race theory will become the backbone of the conservative rights resistance to the current civil rights movement. Critical race theory is going to be their answer to the civil rights movement. When when you hear about, hey, you know, uh, systemic racism in the criminal justice system or systemic racism in the education or systemic racism in the housing market, they're going to be like, oh, that's just that's just that critical race theory thing. And their voters are just going to say, that's that critical race theory thing. And and that's it. And so far, this is working better, I think, than Christopher Rufo could have imagined. And in all honesty, if we want to move forward as a country, we need to come to terms with these concepts. We're not going to move forward on racism if we don't all or the majority of Americans don't acknowledge systemic racism or try to understand systemic racism or to understand white privilege. It's not going to happen. We're going to stay stuck. If we stay stuck and people don't change their opinions or work toward improving themselves or work toward challenging themselves to maybe think about what they're saying, what they're believing, if that doesn't happen, we're just going to become more and more entrenched not only on the issue of racism, but on all of the major issues that are trigger points for us. And, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, we need to unify. You know, oh, you know, we, we're so divided. You know, we're, we're divided over these issues because these are issues of morality. These are issues of how we treat other people. Systemic racism isn't just, it's not just a theory. It's, it's, it's the framework in which many Americans are living their lives. It's a set of disadvantages that Americans are having to fight through because of the color of their skin or, uh, you know, their place of upbringing, whatever it may be. So we can talk about this and theorize about it and argue whether or not it exists all day. The longer we do that, the more people are going to suffer. 
the more people suffer, the more angry they're going to get. And if the right stays entrenched saying, that, oh, there's no systemic racism, we don't need to do anything to solve this problem, uh, we don't need to pay attention to voter laws, we don't need to do any of it, it will escalate. And, and I think everybody at some point has thought about that. You know, I think coming up to the 2020 election, I think a lot of people, some people said that they feared um, backlash, um, violence. Uh, should the election go one way or the other? Or should something happen? And I think a lot of us have thought like, hey, there are elements in play here where it seems like this situation is a little bit of a tinderbox on the whole and that it has the potential to explode under the right circumstances. And that's how most wars start, right? There's a tense situation, an event happens, and there we go. And we're off. And I, I don't think anyone wants that. But in order to overcome our divide on these issues, we need to come to some common ground from an intellectual standpoint as well as a human standpoint. Right now, in my opinion, conservatives are not acknowledging the actual literal suffering of millions of Americans. They just refuse to acknowledge it. And they also won't challenge themselves to look beyond their own personal beliefs to see if, hey, there's, is there anything to the systemic racism thing? Is there anything to this white privilege thing? If I look at these subjects and I remove myself, I remove my feelings from it and I read the text on the page and I don't, I try not to react. I try not to feel guilty or angry or anything like that. When I read the words, is there truth to them? Is there anything there? They don't go that far. They take the talking points that they hear on Fox News or even further right media that's out there, um, you know, OAN and, um, you know, people on YouTube um, and, and they internalize that and then they don't move because like I said before, to think about changing your opinion on those topics, to entertain it, is a betrayal or would be a betrayal of their cultural identity. And I do think that Republicans are more likely to feel strongly about their affiliation to that identity than Democrats do because Republicans impose far harsher penalties on those that step away from that mainstream point of view. So... What we need to do is we just need to find that common ground. And, you know, again, I might be biased a little bit here. If, because the Democrats aren't perfect, liberals aren't perfect, progressives aren't perfect, you know, there, there are definite issues with ideology there too. There is a far left. From my perspective, if, if you're looking center, I think if you, you know, move 10 inches to the left, that's how far left our most left people in government are our politicians, our actual politicians, let's say 10 inches to the left. But if we go to the right, we're like 40 inches right. We're, we're, we're talking about people on the right who have literally advocated for authoritarian government. They've advocated for our election to be overthrown or undermined or for the vote to be overturned in a very real way. And that's not something that the left has done. When, when the left, when, when Democrats lost in 2016, we were upset. We whined. We didn't like Trump. We said we didn't like Trump. We said, hey, that Russia thing, we should check that out. That should be investigated. But no one said, oh, Hillary's the president. Hillary's the president, and she's going she's gonna to retake office in 10 months because she somehow won the election. It didn't happen. There, there, is, a, there is a large gap in the level of crazy that the extremes get, okay? So if the left is 10 inches left and the right is 40 inches right at its most extreme, and I'm talking about, I'm not talking about people on the internet, I'm talking about the people serving as our public servants in Congress. If AOC and Bernie are the crazy left and you put them up against Marjorie Taylor Greene, I think you'll understand where I'm coming from, right? And, and, the, and the other thing that I, I, I wanted to touch on a little bit it, just to get into this process, right? What, what does this process do? This process of getting people, especially on the right, to a point where they can deny historical facts and get to a certain point where they're thinking like, you know, systemic racism isn't real, white privilege isn't real, so on and so forth. Like I said, when Hillary lost in 2016, how many people drove around and saw huge Hillary flags up on the side of the road 10 months after the fact? How many people drove down the road and saw a Hillary store with Hillary memorabilia that you could buy? How many people um, saw Hillary Clinton on TV giving massive rallies to huge crowds uh, saying that she was going to run for office again with, within a few months of the election? How many people saw that? How many people 
uh, saw huge Hillary banners in people's windows or, uh, you know, who? It didn't happen. It's a level of insanity that we're seeing with with people who voted for Trump, especially, and Trump supporters that we've just never seen before in the history of this country, and it cannot be equated to anything that the left has done. It just hasn't happened. It hasn't happened. No one can pretend it happened. If you can pretend it happened, then you've fallen victim to the process that I've described in this episode. A little bit of reality goes a long way. So, getting a little bit off topic here, but back to critical race theory. This is the second episode on critical race theory. I defined it in the first episode. I talked about what the Republicans think of it. You know, we heard Mike Pence, Ted Cruz earlier this episode. You know, it's, it's as critical race theory is as racist as the uh, Klansmen and White Hoods, right? Like I said, you know, that's, that's 40 inches of extremism on the right, right? If we're going to qualify it, that statement is 40 inches of extremism when compared to the actual definition that I read off at the beginning of this, this episode and the last. So you've got critical race theory. It comes in with Christopher Rufo on Fox News. Republicans get incensed about it. And then they demand that it not be taught in schools, even though it's not being taught in any public schools, K-12, anywhere in this country. Like I said last time, the Republicans have managed to mobilize against a problem that doesn't exist in a way that if they applied to real problems, we'd be, we'd be in great shape, you know, if they focused on constructive issues and actually getting stuff done. But what does that say? It, it says that there is a perception in this country, there is a feeling in this country that says that even the thought of an idea like systemic racism or, or some of our bad history, our dark history as America, being taught in schools is dangerous. Those are dangerous things to teach. We don't want them taught here. And what's the motive for that, right? Because if people can truly do whatever they want with the information, what's the harm in giving it to them because it's fact? Nothing. They're trying to shield people from these facts. And they're doing it because they don't like what the inevitable outcome of a civil rights movement is going to be, which is easier voting for minority groups, easier voting for all Americans, and therefore easier voting for minority groups as well. Better opportunity for black uh, communities and minority communities from the time that they're born that are the same as you know, that I get to experience. So many people in the black community, minority community have had to face obstacles and barriers that have never once come close to threatening my experience as a a white male, right? And these ideas are scary to a lot of conservatives because they believe it's a zero-sum game. In some ways, there is a self kind of delusion that is, is keeping them where they're at because in reality, equality doesn't hurt anybody. Equality will not disadvantage white people. It is not a zero-sum game. If we empower black people and minority communities, we are all better for it. We have like high-paying, high-tech jobs with unfilled seats that Americans can't fill because we're not educated enough to fill them. Let's educate everybody. Let's get those seats filled. Let's get Americans in those jobs, keep the money in this economy. If we help everyone come up to the same floor to start at, we will be better off as a nation. Period. The better the middle class and lower class are doing, the better the country is doing. We have literally a case study with the New Deal after the Depression and through World War, after World War II to prove all of that. We have the evidence. It's been done. Let's throw out the bad word. When the socialist programs were put into place after World War II, the economy boomed. And we have all of those things today. And you, no one wants to let them go. They're, they're critical to the American experience, right? When Americans are polled on the issues, they overwhelmingly favor democratic policies, as in parties pushed by the Democratic Party. It is the affiliation with identity, which both groups are definitely guilty of, but is the association with a group that prevents people from voting in their own self-interest most of the time, right? And because those groups are powerful, and, and in this case, the conservative right with critical race theory, because they're powerful, because they're persuasive, because there are mechanisms in place from birth up through the time you become a voter to make sure that you vote a certain way in many places, the divide is there to stay. If you take anything out of these two episodes, anything at all, if you, you can disagree with me up and down on everything I've just said, if you take away anything at all, it is when you hear a new term for the first time, don't listen to the guy on the television screen. Don't. Go look it up. 
go to a dictionary and look up the term. I've never heard that before. They're saying this is bad. What is it? Go look it up. Oh, it's that. That doesn't sound so bad. Okay, why doesn't it sound so bad? Do a little bit of your own research if you're invested, if you hear something. I think it's weird that people can get really, really passionate about a subject like critical race theory when they actually know nothing about critical race theory. They, they are willing to take the media and people like Christopher Rufo and then Ted Cruz and Mike, they're willing to take them at their word and clearly they haven't done any research into what it is because they wouldn't feel the way they do if they did. But they're completely okay with the term critical race theory being hijacked and used in that way, which either means that they don't care that that's happening or they haven't done the research. It's one or the other. It's, it's as simple as that. So that is my second uh, episode on critical race theory, critical race theory part two. Uh, these have been heavier episodes in the upcoming weeks. I'd like to get a little bit lighter and, you know, bring some humor back into it and, uh, address some subjects that aren't so heavy. Um, but with the way this is in our media right now, and the fact that these are issues that have really, really negative effects on a lot of Americans, I think it's important to, you know, give it the platform and, um, you know, serious discussion that I think it deserves. So thank you for listening to, uh, first episode and this one. If you read the articles, thank you for reading those two articles. I really appreciate that. You can check them out over at thenewdeal.com or at medium.com. Thank you again for listening. Uh, thanks for listening to the New Deal. Go to thenewdeal.com. Listen to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcast, uh, Podbean, uh, Apple Podcast, whatever it may be. Please like, subscribe, and please rate and review the podcast. Let me know how I'm doing. Uh, five stars would be appreciated doesn't need to be, uh, hey, I disagree with you on this subject and be like, hey, your podcast is generally informative. And even though I disagree with you, it's all right. We definitely appreciate it. So uh, thanks for that, guys. Uh, thanks for listening to New Deal. Hope everyone had a happy 4th of July. And I will talk to you guys next Wednesday.